Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association Preventative Health Podcast. My name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and member of the Preventative Health Committee, and I'm really excited and honored to be here today with Dr. Lauren Macaluso. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for doing this with me. This has been long in planning, right? (laughs) It sure has. So I'm going to explain. Dr. Macaluso is a board-certified pediatrician and lactation consultant with a breastfeeding medicine private practice. She provides specialized medical care for breastfeeding mothers and their children. She is proud to have a medical practice where a mother can get her and her baby's breastfeeding needs met in one place. She attended Cornell University for her undergraduate studies. She received her medical degree from Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and completed her pediatric residency at Children's National Medical Center of George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Her special interest in breastfeeding started after nursing her own two children while working part-time with medical students and residents in the newborn nursery. She identified a need for breastfeeding-focused care and started her practice in 2006. Dr. Macaluso is a fellow of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Pediatrics New York Chapter 2 co-breastfeeding coordinator. She is a partner in Allied Physicians Group, which is where I practice, so that's how we know each other, which is the largest private medical partnership in the New York metropolitan area. So thank you so much for doing this with me. As you know, we work together to um, promote breastfeeding you know, when, when possible. So let's start talking about just the immediate newborn period. And what can, what can you tell us about how to help um, promote breastfeeding then? Let's start at the hospital. Okay. So immediate newborn period in the hospital, we like to really draw attention to the first hour of life after birth. You know, we like to call it the golden hour. It's this really, really essential period of time after a baby is born we're going to go with the goal being a normal vaginal birth. It is very instinctual and normal and mammalian and species specific to, to latch right on and get right up onto your mom's chest and encourage breastfeeding in the first hour. Babies tend to be more wakeful during this period. Our goal is to give them ample opportunity for skin to skin and to have better stable stabilization when you're skin to skin on your mom's chest, you're temperatures, your cortisol, your stress hormones, your your heart rate, all your vitals as a baby are much more stable when you're on your mom's skin to skin. Um, It is warmth when you're on your mom's chest. You know, we like to kind of draw out that breastfeeding and the neonatal newborn period. It, It isn't just about food. It is temperature stabilization. The blood flow to a mom's chest is actually greater than to her brain. Kind of a really cool fact. Um, you know, it's warmth, it's protection, it's instinctual. Um, when babies are born, the amniotic fluid that they're in, in the sac inside us, the smell of that resembles the scent of the secretions that are secreted from glands on the areola on the breast. So babies actually use their hands 
to smell amniotic fluid that's mm-hmm. still on their hands and work their way up to the breast, breast crawl, and self-attach following scents as well. They also utilize visual cues. Um, one of the best ways that they see things are through contrasts. So you have this great dark bullseye circle mm-hmm. right on the chest, right. <laughs> yelling, eat here, eat here, and help for a baby to, to self-attach. So when you think of breastfeeding, when you think of this golden hour, you're thinking in addition to food, it's mammalian instinct. It is normal. It is warmth. It is protection. It is nurturing. It's the start of brain wiring. There's so much here that tends to be unsaid when it comes to this period. But we really, really want to try to, to mount, you know, mount this response and get these babies on early. There are studies showing that babies that latch within the first hour of life tend to breastfeed for longer periods of time and have a more successful breastfeeding duration, exclusivity, and experience. Right. That, that's great when it works out that way, but I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, I don't want people to think, oh my gosh, I ruined it already. I didn't get that first golden hour. It's just not going to work. I, I think that we have to make it quite clear that that's very nice. It's, it's good to try, but if not, then what? It's not going to ruin breastfeeding. Because I think there's this idea of the perfect birth, and that's part of the perfect birth experience, the nursing after. And things can happen, right? Things do happen. They definitely do happen. I, I think one of the things, though, that we don't always do so well is is capitalize on normal and encourage this right. and, and educate and empower mothers to know about this. Because I think not everyone knows what normal, believe it or not, is lately. Um, I do agree with you. You know, the goal is to have this happen. It doesn't always happen. Um, I always try really hard to get out what normal is and what needs to be done. Because I don't think everyone, once again, is aware of this. So, you know, the goal is on-demand feeding and trying to start early and skin-to-skin continuing that so they have the ability to have the opportunities to self-attach and get on and responding to early hunger cues um, and providing these. It's not that they need a tremendous amount of food early on, the colostrum, the early milk, really all they need. There are five milliliters in a teaspoon and they need two to 10 per feed in the first 24 hours. That's less than half a teaspoon to two teaspoons per feed. It's not a huge amount. So if things are challenging and it is difficult to baby to get on, We want to truly look for a medical indication to supplement and be thoughtful in that approach before we start to impede on normalness. And there are things we can do. You know, options for supplementation um, can be spooning up colostrum. Um, A neat area if a baby is having a hard time getting on is teaching mom's hand expression. Mm -hmm. Early on, when you're only producing a half a teaspoon to two teaspoons of milk, it doesn't always feel the most comfortable to get this hospital grade mega electric pump on you right away. And it can be a lot more comfortable for people to utilize their hands or do everything in combination of being trying to latch, use your hands, consider using the pump as more milk comes in. Um, But other things we can do if latch isn't going well, we can spoon up colostrum and you can actually do that preventatively as well to prevent um, excessive weight loss, jaundice, other negative things from happening. You can use a cup. To, to feed, obviously, teaching parents how to do this, and or you can consider doing a bottle, case bottle feeding um, as well if latch isn't going well. And, of course, our goal whenever we do any of these, you know, things to, to um, that aren't besides latching, we're going to try to continue to work on latch and get that to be successful while we're supplementing in other ways. Right. So, again, you know, there's the ideal, and then there's 
many people's reality. You know, as a general pediatrician, I see a lot of first time moms you know, and they really want to do it and they're exhausted. They've had a rough delivery. You know, the baby may have had low blood sugar and, you know, needed to go to the intensive care. There's so many possible things that can go, you know, awry from your beautiful, perfect golden hour nursing the baby plan. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. First of all, we don't want perfect to be the enemy of the good, Right. So we don't want to say, okay, well, it did this part didn't work out the way we wanted, but that means I can't nurse at all. So I want to go on more from, well, what if you need to supplement the baby and how would, how would you know you need to supplement the baby? So supplement, I'm talking about supplement with a bottle at this point. Okay. So supplementing, you want to have a true medical indication for supplementation. So you're going to look at different parameters for mom and baby you're going to look at a baby and you're going to look at what their weight parameters are. So it is normal to lose weight when you first come out. It's very common to lose something in the zone of 7 to 10% of your birth weight. And, and you're pretty much allowed to do that before milk quote comes in. So after this early colostral period, you start to have what's known as lactogenesis 2 happen. And you're progesterone hormone goes down and your prolactin, your milk making hormone comes in and you have more milk coming. So you will, will notice this and this tends to happen around day three, four or five. Sometimes it can be a little more delayed if there's other risk factors going on like a C-section or, or other things. Um, you're allowed to, to lose around 7 to 10% of your birth weight while this is happening. And then once milk comes in, usually after that, you start to gain an ounce a day. If you are not meeting these parameters, if you have excessive weight loss, you are at 10% weight loss down and it's day two and milk isn't likely to come in for day three, four, or five. If you are showing signs of inadequate urine and stooling as an infant, typically we, a quick, dirty way of doing it mm -hmm. is one, one pee and one poop on day one two and two on day two, three and three on day three, et cetera. Um, if you are not, you know, you're not having you know, any wet diapers on day two, if a little bit of urine we see on you is brick red dust and, and very concentrated, you're showing signs of dehydration, you're not pooping, we're going to be all, all over you and, and concerned that you're not getting what you need. And that those would be a medical indication for supplementation. And if that's going to happen, then we are going to consider, you know, ways to supplement. The most common in our neck of the woods tends to be a bottle. Um, we're going to look to supplement you. Um, it could either be expressed milk if you are able to start expressing some. Obviously, in those scenarios, it, most of the time, it's a mom whose milk hasn't come in yet. Um, otherwise, there is the potential to look into pasteurized donor human milk, which is available at a lot of the hospitals in our area. Um, if that is not accessible or by choice, then we go to formula. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what about nipple confusion? You know, I hear a lot about nipple confusion. I've had parents who are afraid to supplement because then the baby won't go on the breast. So global recommendations, everything I'm going to share with you has evidence base behind it and, mm -hmm. and global protocol. So recommendation is to try to avoid artificial nipples for the first month of life. So we do try to encourage, once again, if you do not have a medical indication for supplementation or by, you know, by choice, um, our goal is to just be at the breast on demand feeding for the first month of life and wait to introduce a bottle. Um, a lot of reasons why, you know, it is 
It's a new learned behavior for two of you. It is two human beings coming together and trying to execute something right. that a lot of moms have never done before. And obviously baby is, is new at it. It, it is instinctual. You know, once again, it, it, we are mammals, but it isn't always a piece of cake. I think there's a lot of reasons for that in our culture. We haven't quite normalized this process yet. We're not really seeing our friends and, and people out there doing this, unfortunately, crazy comfortably. Um, a lot of our moms haven't breastfed. And it's really hard to feel confident with something when it hasn't truly been normalized yet. Um, so it can say, take some time to learn this dance of it's mom dance, and baby. Right? It total, totally is. And mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. anything else, I, I like to use it as it's like riding a bike and you need training wheels and you fall down a lot and you got to keep getting up and getting on and getting up and getting on. It takes a little while before you get it and can be like, look, mom, no hands. So right. your, your goal is over that first month with support when needed to try to help empower mom to practice Another important thing is you want to bring in a full milk supply. And the best way to do that is with on-demand feeding. Once again, evidence-based recommendations are 8 to 12 feeds a day for the first month of life. This is insanely challenging. It is typically one of the hardest things we will do as breastfeeding parents mentally and physically, emotionally, and socially is get through this period. And once again, it is important for us to be out there to support breastfeeding parents to execute this and help them to stay positive and, and, and help to make this as enjoyable and, and positive as possible. Um, but the goal is going to be 8 to 12 feeds a day and offering both breasts and alternating your start side and responding to early hunger cues. And when your baby starts to lick and mouth and root, move their hands, your goal is to pick that baby up and put them on um, and feed. And I always like to point out, we may get to this later, but this is important to be said, you know, a mom is such an important being, a breastfeeding, um, you know, person is, they need to be loved and nurtured in their own right because they are working extremely hard to do this. So this is where I try to say you're like an exotic plant and we Mm -hmm. need to water and feed you and love you and, and do as much as we can as partners as family members, as friends, as a community, as healthcare providers, it's our job to really nourish the breastfeeding, you know, parent's soul as well as the baby. Right. And you really can't do anything else. <laughs> you know, Like a lot of people have the expectation, okay, the baby's out. I'm going to clean the house and have guests over and so on and so forth. And you can't, it's a full-time yeah. job. It, it is and hopefully to be enjoyed. I, I think sometimes, you know, we're so caught up in moving so quickly and got to get back to work and, it, it, it's tough sometimes to stop and embrace and enjoy this. But um, obviously I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I wasn't someone who didn't embrace and enjoy this and feel like it's the be all end all. But I think it can be really empowering for people, you know, to breastfeed and to get into that dance and learn what your baby needs and, and watch yourself evolve as a really confident parent who can predict and know your baby's needs, meet them. It's your body. You know, once again, we're other important things besides nourishing the baby is all the health benefits and risk reduction that go on when you do this. Because as you do this, once again, it is normal when you are feeding your baby, you're having hormonal responses occur that help, um, you know, let's go over one being like letdown reflex, oxytocin hormone release from your posterior pituitary gland, causing smooth muscle contraction, 
lining those milk producing cells and ducts and pushing the milk out as that happens. The uterine wall is being contracted as well, helps to bring your pouch down, helps to prevent bleeding, decrease anemia. You tend not to ovulate very much during your breastfeeding experience, so improved child spacing, um, less likely to get pregnant. Your whole metabolism recalibrates, so you actually have a decreased risk later on in life of metabolic issues like high blood pressure and heart disease and diabetes. Um, COVID was really a good time early in COVID to point this out. You know, we were finding that people that were getting the sickest with COVID were people that tended to have those issues. And, you know, when you really thought about it, by helping a mother to be successful breastfeeding, she is lowering her risk later on of having these major illnesses occur. So there's there's so much here Mm. in terms of risk modification for moms and their infants. Um, Super important to remember the normalcy of it and try to help people to to execute it. Right. There's so many benefits, but I I keep going back to (laughs) no perfect to be the enemy of the as good as we're going to get at that point in time. Because as a pediatrician, what I see is they come in on day three or four and so many of these, you know, first time parents, they're, they're anxious. The baby is starting to dehydrate. They're, they're, they're not feeding well for a number of reasons that we can go into. And I think it's just important to say the most important thing is to feed the baby and to care for the mother. And it's not like you will lose this forever and ever. You can still pick it up. That's what you're there for. And that's why we send people to you. It's not over and done with. And you can still, like to me, it's most important to feed the baby at that point in time and figure out, because I've seen it where the babies sort of spiral down. They get sleepy. They don't feed well. And you're not getting anywhere. So it's okay. And it may be important to supplement at that point. And I'm finding, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm finding that the so-called baby-friendly hospital policies are not letting the hospitals support other than breastfeeding. And when it doesn't work, I I find that to, to be a bigger problem than, yes, you know, breastfeeding is great when you get it to work. So I want to go, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. I'm going to be the, be the, the bad copy. <laughs> That's totally fine. And I am with you on that. I mean, definitely, obviously, if a baby is not growing, we need to do something about it. And we will. At that point, we are going to try to continue latching. We're going to encourage a mom to start pumping. Right. And we're going to supplement appropriately and make sure that that kid is gaining an ounce a day and some ketchup if they need to. We're going to do everything we can on to hands-on help that mother feel confident knowing what she needs to do of how to latch, how to do it deeply with good biomechanics and appropriately and make sure she owns it. Because that's a definitely thing I'm finding is really tough in our hospital settings, especially during COVID. You were in and out the door really quickly. It is difficult to get hands-on time-intensive help on how to latch in general. Um, So huge, important piece is just making sure people understand how to do it deeply and well, um, strong biomechanics. And then obviously also how to supplement and how to not overfeed and not underfeed, how to recognize hunger cues, how to pace bottle feed so you can help the baby be the one to lead the way to gain weight appropriately and try to help her utilize her hands and a pump to bring in a full milk supply, get this kid to grow, wake up, improve, and then help her to transition, obviously to act breastfeed to be feeding at the breast if we can. And I'm with you. There are times where moms have a a medical situation, a baby has a medical situation, 
or by choice also. Once right. again, I think super important, non-judgmental. Right. Our goal is to support a family and what their quest and, and their wishes are. And I just want to make sure it's an educated and an empowered decision that they know what normal is and what the risk reduction is and that we're going to do everything we can to make this happen. But obviously by choice or physical, social, emotional challenge or whatever, if it's, if it's not happening, then I'm going to support you to feed your baby the way you are comfortable feeding. I think sometimes right. I, I get what you're saying. You will have um, a family by choice. I'm not comfortable feeding at the breast. I want to just pump. I'm not comfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't want to breastfeed. I just want a formula feed. And you have the full right and choice to do that and should be supported in whatever your your dreams and your wishes are. Right. I, I definitely have families that like to pump either because they're anxious that their child's not getting enough, which you can go into a little bit of how you know that. It takes a certain amount of faith. Or because there was a latch issue. So I do want you to explain, you know, what are some of the issues that come up, maybe starting with latch issues, because those are so common. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, number one is, you know, as we call it, is a shallow latch. It's mm-hmm. not so easy to execute getting deeply onto the breast. You know, we, we like to say, right, we don't nipple feed, we breastfeed. Right. So it's super important to teach moms how to help their babies get deeply onto the areola, the dark circle, not the nipple. Because um, the goal, right, the, the, the nipple is not made to withstand their gums and hard palate. The areola tissue is. So if you're latching shallowly, it is not going to be comfortable. You are also, the baby is going to have a much harder time to drain um, the breast adequately, get what they need to grow. And you're going to hurt and have destruction, trauma, cracking, bleeding, um, soreness, and and it's not going to be pleasant. So super, super important to go over latch. It's the number one be-all thing. I start there with every single dyad that comes into my office. There's usually something you can teach to help them get on more deeply. Um, a, a typical approach, you know, you can look at it. There's what's known as just laid back breastfeeding. Once again, this is the perfect world, which I know doesn't exist for everyone. For many, but, actually. Yeah, I understand. You know what happens though? Obviously those, those people don't always find me, but they may find you in a pediatric office. But, um, you know, once again, with breast crawl, with instinctual ability, babies do have the ability to get on and self-attach. And really all a mom needs to do is, is lean back and, and have her baby tummy to tummy and let the baby self-attach. Obviously, I see a lot of people that are having the soreness, the practice, the destruction, you know, the need of the help. Um, so when that's going on, I'm going to try to lead them to what's known as a deep asymmetrical latch. I like to say when you put A in front of a word, it means not. So asymmetrical means not symmetrical. It's a lot like eating a sandwich, we describe mm. it. Um, and when you think of what you do when you eat a sandwich, you tend to do a, a good amount of what we call head extension. You tend to lead with your chin because when you tilt your head back, like a chugging position, you can open your mouth a little gape a lot wider and get a bigger mouthful, right? You think of eating that huge stacked burger you tend to have to lead with your chin and drop your head back to get the biggest mouth possible. So we try to help encourage babies to lead with their chins and have head extension going on. You want your baby to stay symmetric. Usually we call that tummy to tummy with the mom because, right, in order to chug and drink effectively, it's really helpful to not have your head turned to the side. 
So you want to think of their ear, shoulder, butt being in a line with head extension. And then the, the sandwich analogy is shaping your breast similar direction mm-hmm. um, to the baby's mouth, but having them come on in an asymmetrical fashion, not straight on to that nipple areola bullseye, but starting more from below and then having them come up and over. A lot of times you, you work on little kinks of positioning and biomechanics and you can help get people much more comfortable and more effective transfer and help them be more successful. Right. How would you know if it's a good latch or a bad latch? Comfort is a big thing. Sometimes you, sh- you do this with a mom and she looks up at you and goes, oh my God, that feels so much better. That's usually a, a number one thing I love to see in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely will see a deeper jaw, lower jaw excursion from a baby with better, deeper movements and swallowing. If a mom has a really nice milk supply, you can hear, we look for audible, you can hear it, the swallowing that's going on. It's not so chompy, short, pain. And another thing that people like me have in our offices is what we call a scale that, that's um, accurate enough that we can do a test weight where mm. we can actually weigh your baby, feed your baby, and weigh your baby after and actually tell you what the baby took. And having normal you know, parameters for what kids typically eat at certain ages and looking at an infant's weight gain, um, you can give a lot of nice positive reassurance when you can get a good test weight and they can actually see that hard data in front of them to say, look what you did. Um, you just transferred three ounces, you know, and, and they're like, yay. <laughs> so it's nice to have some positive reinforcement on hand when, when needed. And also the other way, it can be helpful sometimes when you're wondering, I don't feel like this is going well. Um, you know, obviously it can demonstrate we need to give other food. Your baby isn't, you know, even though this is one feed in the series of many, if it, you know, kind of we, we went for a good period of time. We maximize mechanics. It's representative of what you're doing at home. This can be, you know, also strong data in front of you to show we need to give other food and it's appropriate to supplement. Right. What are some things that happen with babies that make it hard for them to breastfeed? Oh, let's see. (laughs) I'd say, (laughs) I know, I know. I'm going to start with like the most common things I see in the office. Let's start Mm. with that. Sleepy. In pediatrics, we have a sleepy diagnosis code. It is really common to be sleepy the first couple weeks of life. And we're not always telling families this. So sometimes you really need to encourage continuation of skin to skin. We kind of get focused on right after delivery, right? Right away in the hospital, oh, you got to do the skin to skin thing. When you get home, if you have a sleepy baby, really helpful to continue to do skin to skin and just feed your baby in a diaper. And sometimes you really have to push them. You need to teach families to tickle feet and rub backs and, and, and blow on them and wet washcloth to be really mean. And sometimes you have to be the one to make sure, right, that evidence-based guideline of 8 to 12 feeds a day. Sometimes you have to be the one to pull your kid out of their swaddle, out of their outfit in that diaper and bother them and get them on to both sides, at least something in the zone of every two to three hours in order for them to get the food in and get the weight gain going. Right, so and sleepy active is super common. Yeah, active yeah. suckling, because that's something yep. that I see a lot is where they're flutter sucking, and they're like, you know, using yep. like the breast as a pacifier, and then my parents go, they've been on my breast for 30 minutes. Yep, yep. So latch mechanics, huge, trying to teach people how to get their baby on shallow, you know, not shallowly, because think mm-hmm. about it, right? If they're, right. If they're on the nipple, and it's, they're going to be on there a long time, and they're not going to be able to drain and get what they need. So deep mechanics, huge. 
sleepy baby really common. Sometimes, and I'm sure we're going to get to this too at some point, you, you look at better known as tongue tie, you know, frenulum oh, <laughs> restriction, it, you know, it is an entity. Um, sometimes I will see that. Um, that can affect their ability to lift, move. Tongue movements can be restricted when you have, you know, we call layman's term tongue tie, lingual frenulum restriction. So the, the membrane that holds your tongue to the floor of your mouth in some babies can be restricted and impede tongue movements and make it more difficult for you to transfer milk at the breast and get what you need. Um, this is an area that uh, it's amazing. I, I was a general pediatrician for, for eight years. Five of those were just spent in a newborn nursery. And now I'm 15 years into just doing a breastfeeding practice. And it's been fascinating to watch this diagnosis evolve over the past few decades. And um, it, it's something that I just always like to take the approach of you want to be really thoughtful when mm-hmm. you diagnose. And especially in this area, um, I never feel that comfortable just looking at the baby and saying straight off the bat, oh, it's definitely this and we need to do this and da, da, da. We should be really taking into account a baby's exam a baby's ability to function, mm-hmm. a baby's at the breast, what their ability is to feed and observe that, a mother's history, how her nipples are feeling. Is she, is, is she able to drain her breast? Is the baby draining her? Is she getting clogged ducts and mastitis and nipple trauma and bleeding and cracking and destruction? And is the baby biting, chomping, chewing, having a hard time maintaining seal? And we look at the baby and they're very difficult for them to lift and rise and and move and things are restricted you, know, you want to see that and then that's a diagnosis and you refer you know appropriately for a procedure uh, i get a little scared now because sometimes it's so out there um as oh breastfeeding is having you're having difficulties you know it you must be a soreness we got to just go there yeah right. so sometimes you see people skipping any type of of history exam or anything right. and they're going straight to get this done and, you know, like anything else, you want to be thoughtful in life before, you know, I think sometimes we think this isn't doing anything, but we are seeing kids that have other diagnosis going on. They have, you know, retrognathia. They have a really receding mm. jaw structure. You have kids with micrognathia, really small. You can make their feeding even more difficult by releasing, their, by doing this procedure. So you want to be thoughtful, you know, in your approach. I, I think the field of breastfeeding and breasts as an organ system for women have been not really included in, in medicine. Um, unfortunately, aside for, from cancer, it's really tough to get training in this field for pediatricians, obstetricians, family physicians, breast surgeons, radiologists, people that breastfeeding women are encountering in medicine very few have been trained or have much experience in a breastfeeding breast, a breastfeeding mom and baby and diagnosis and treatment. And it, 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 it's horrifying sometimes because to have an organ system, to have something that is instinctual, mammalian, normal physiology, to have not been embraced and included in medicine till the 90s. Right. That's pretty horrifying. <laughs> so in a good way, there's more of us that are standing up, recognizing the importance of this, embracing mother-baby medicine as a unit, looking at this care as something that we're passionate and being thorough about and recognizing the importance of 
embracing this and, and truly diagnosing and treating things appropriately. Right. It really is complicated. I want to go back a little bit to the, to the tongue tie because I feel like it's become such a fad. And I think it's important for people to understand that it is normal to have a membrane there and it may or may not be restrictive. It is not typically connected with um, speech delay, articulation problems, and it may not have anything to do with the breastfeeding. So yep. it's so yep. much more helpful <laughs> when I can send to you and you can look to see what's actually going on rather than uh-huh. just sending to an ENT to get the tongue tie clipped. But yeah, yeah. Sometimes it, I, even most of the, you know, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine came out with a, a statement recently, the American Academy of Otolaryngology, they came out with a, a statement in June. Um, mm-hmm. Most, you know, experts in those areas and those statements are, supporting that even if there is restriction there if, if feeding isn't impacted right. you don't you don't have to do a procedure right away um, right. and yeah. it may stretch it's really about the function more than does it exist and we're not even talking about what's called posterior tongue ties and cheek and lip ties i hear about these every single day i don't think we have good evidence behind releasing them related to breastfeeding or, or speech per se we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah. There, um, I, I'm a fellow of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine mm. and feel strongly about my peers that are that are with me in this and challenging to, to look at the data. And they tried their, their hardest, the protocol, you know, to look at things and came out with a statement. And we are sa- you know, seeing that there isn't enough evidence right. um, to say that, that some of the stuff is necessary quite yet. I'm hoping we will get more once again trying to include breast breastfeeding in medicine, um, you know, a little bit on the, the, the newer side and, and we're looking to keep moving forward. Right. So what other things could cause a baby to not be able to breastfeed? Well, we talked a little bit about the tongue. We talked a lot about the tongue. <laughs> yeah. A little yeah. bit about, <laughs> um, about, um, did we talk about low muscle tone? I don't think so. We talked about something like that. We didn't. We didn't. Something else. Yeah. Um, Preemies, low muscle tone babies, you know, other babies with special needs may have a hard time. Yep. Yep. Congenital heart disease. Mm -hmm. Um, I think of cases that I picked up along the years, like that's um, good and bad. You know, it's it's nice. I'll, I'll never forget this one baby I saw that a lot of kids, if you have heart disease, you, you tire with the, it's, it's tougher for you to, um, you know, maintain oxygenation and eat in the work you're doing. So a lot of these kids, you'll see they'll, what we call retract, they'll have to use accessory muscles to help them breathe as they're trying to execute a feeding. And it can be kind of subtle. Um, and a lot of times now we have much better and better prenatal ultrasound. So a lot of this stuff can be picked up um, before delivery even now. Um, but sometimes they, they get missed, I've learned, along the way. So I, a, a couple of times I've picked up a kid with a congenital heart defect um, that when you watch a feed, I always latch them skin to skin here in just a diaper because I can see everything that way as to mm-hmm. how they're feeding and what's going on. Um, so sometimes, yeah, you can see a kid working a little hard and, and retracting and having some difficulty and you want to talk with their pediatrician um, about looking into a cardiac um, source of that too. Sometimes kids can have just other respiratory issues. Um, you can see laryngomalacia, a little mm-hmm. bit of like a floppy airway. Your airway is made out of cartilage. It's not always easy to coordinate, suck, swallow, breathe in those scenarios, um, Sometimes those can be subtle too. I've, I've found those here too at impact feeding. Um, 
I have never seen that impact feeding. I mean, laryngomalacia sounds scary, but, you know, it's just like you said, not fully developed airway. And I I have never seen it impact feeding. Yeah, it can be tougher for them to feed. Sometimes they'd be better in a prone position. Sometimes you have to work with them with different latching positions. Positioning. Mm -hmm. There's not a reason why they can't breastfeed. That's not like a baby with a cardiac issue or a real you respiratory wanna, abnormality. Yeah, you just you just want to make sure that they're getting the adequate calories that you know that they need in, and if they're not able to, sometimes you need to supplement these kids until they're better able to do it on their own. Right. So that's mom. a perfect segue to babies that aren't gaining enough on the breast. What would be some reasons why that would happen? Um, you got to look at the baby. We're outside the newborn period. We've moved okay. beyond that. I'm with you. I'm with you. So now we got to think about. I call it still two areas, right? It's two people coming together. Mm-hmm. So whenever a baby isn't gaining weight, you're thinking, is it something going on with the mom? Mm-hmm. Is it something going on with the baby? Or is it something going on with the transfer? Mm-hmm. So you always want to think of what's going on with the mom. And sometimes as things get older, sometimes people become pregnant and that impacts milk supply. Right. Sometimes people are started on a medication like a combined oral contraceptive and that can decrease milk supply. Um, sometimes they are taking some other kind of a medication, um, a decongestant. Um, sometimes they're, they're put on a medication that they don't realize can impact milk supply negatively. That can happen. Um, sometimes they are initiating sleep training early and having a baby pushed through the night more. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're finding too with that is in order to maintain milk production, um, prolactin is your milk making hormone and it usually works best. Even as you get into older months, it's sometimes hard to maintain production. If you're spacing breast stimulation mm-hmm. and you're going too long, you're not going to get the same prolactin surges and it can cause your, your milk supply to go down, ovulation to return. Um, and we're seeing that sometimes when people are, are pushing like eight to 10 hours really early in lactation when, you know, you only want to go at the longest at the beginning, you know, one month to three months, a night span of three to six hours is normal. You're going yeah. a lot more than this, six this, hours this and just we're that happening. Yeah, this just happened with a family of mine. And it's so hard to say, I'm sorry, you can't let that baby sleep six to eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. So hard. You, you, you see a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I don't, I don't, it's hard sometimes. I mean, there's so much counseling that we need to and should be doing that right. sometimes I think it's hard for them to get this information, you know, ahead of time and, and right. realize the impacts of, of what they're doing. Right. And I've also seen it when the mom goes back to work and she doesn't realize, again, that she's gone longer periods between either feeding or pumping and her supply has gone down. Because again, the challenging thing about breastfeeding is I always joke, there's no nipple, there's no ounce marks on your nipples. You, you do not yeah. know how much the baby's taking. Yeah. And that also can be true if the baby's, you know, also not actively suckling for as long and the parent may be distracted. Yeah. And work, realizing. I agree with you. You brought up work, which is super important to you. Yeah. I know. Yeah. We do know that, you know, earlier you go back to work, it's harder when you're separated to, to establish and maintain a milk supply. And we're not, unfortunately, we're not always having truly supportive work environments that are helping moms to, to pump every three hours and doing it at the frequency and the time that they need to and, and having that be accessible. Um, hopefully we're, we're working hard to move in the right direction to that for better leave, understanding the importance of the family of the breastfeeding relationship and optimizing health. 
Um, you know, the, there's a whole business case for breastfeeding that's been out there for years to show right. you know, there's strong incentives for businesses to help women to breastfeed because, you know, as we kind of alluded to earlier, there's, there's less, there's risk reduction. So babies are going to have, you name an infection and it's decreased in a baby, less ear infections and gastrointestinal, lower respiratory tract infections. And moms, um, you know, obviously you'll miss work less often if your baby isn't sick, you don't have to stay home to care for them. Um, usually women that breastfeed too, you are feel if you're helping them to pump and execute this, they are feeling much more satisfied with how you're treating them. And they tend to be a better employee, more satisfied with what they're doing and more productivity usually from them and a happier work environment. Um, they're there more, stay with you longer. So it's a lot of, it's a win-win to encourage, you know, breastfeeding and a mom to continue to breastfeed and help her to pump and execute as well. Right, but back to the real world for all of ah! <laughs> You know, I, I do live. That's okay. <laughs> but the reason I'm saying this is because I never want moms to feel guilty. Everybody tries to do their best for their child. Of and the course. best for your child is to feed your child. I like this movement, Fed is Best. It's not anti-breastfeeding. It's pro mom and baby. And so that's my strong stance. So one option would be for mom to say, okay, I was able to nurse while I was home. I'm going back to work. I'm either going to do it part-time. You can mix breast and bottle. It's not like never the twain shall meet, right? Or you can wean earlier, but the baby has to be thriving. Yes. And the mom has to be thriving. I I do agree with both thriving. I do, I do, I do. I am with you on that. I, I I think a huge part of this is, and, and I think you were getting at this earlier, too. I, I think we really do. Everyone out there knows that this is something that they should be doing. And it's really, I really call it like shove down everyone's right. throat of you need to breastfeed, you need to breastfeed. But there's such a lack of providers out there with right. knowledge and spending time um, and using evidence base and being fully present and really holding and creating safe spaces and spending time, quality, hands-on time with people to help them execute this. So what a horrible thing to to do to someone, but to say, you need to do this and then not not provide them with enough support to execute it. And I I really think that's the biggest problem. That's the baseline of a lot of this. Mm -hmm. I think at least if we were to do that and to hands-on help, we would have a lot more success out there, which I do find in my clinical environment. Um, I'm darn proud. I feel like I've been doing this for so long. I see a lot of families back and a lot of positivity happening and changing people's lives for the better, which is great. Understandably, it is not always perfect, for sure. There's plenty that I am with them and feel teary that I'm so sorry, we're doing everything we can, but just physically the milk supply isn't developing, you know? I had a mom this week that like, you know, a lot of risk factors that can go into it between, you know, C-section delaying things, Mm -hmm. obesity can impact things, having a baby with tongue tie. Like there's, there's sometimes you get four and five risk factors that are just kind of additive that can make this whole thing challenging and we do the best we can. Um, But I think also acknowledging too, that as you said, Sometimes it isn't a perfect world. It's not going to be perfect, but having them know that you're with them and you together, you're doing everything you can to make this happen and applauding them and loving them. I think we'd be a much happier place and a much happier world with a lot less negativity and frustration and anger 
if we were to help meet people's needs, educate them on what's normal and have them, you know, be with them to know that we're with them and we're doing everything we can to make this happen. And we're sorry it can't. Um, but no one's, not everyone is getting that. Very few people are getting that. Type right. Of it's sad. Yeah, no, they're getting guilt. They're getting guilt and that doesn't do anybody any good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I want to just touch a little bit upon the milk soy protein intolerance because I do see that a lot. I don't know why I feel like I'm seeing it more over time. I don't know if you are. I definitely see it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what we're getting at is, is some kids can be hypersensitive to a protein that we're eating. Um, and that gets transferred in our breast milk to a baby and they can have symptoms of intolerance. Um, commonly it presents with blood in their poop, little red flecks. Sometimes it can be microscopic. So you don't see it with the naked eye, but we can do a test in the office that we call a guaiac where we can put a little indicator in and, and find that there's microscopic blood there. Um, they can present with fussiness. Um, I too have seen just a couple over the past couple of weeks that have right. presented kind of like two months and they're mm-hmm. just really uncomfortable. Um, sometimes there's eczema there, which helps you also go down that path because, you know, it's an allergic type of rash and it can help lock you into the thought of this diagnosis as well. Um, so you can see fussiness, you can see eczema, the blood and the poop. Um, I find a lot of patients kind of get confused. They think lactose. Mm-hmm. They think their, their baby has lactose sensitivity, but lactose is the milk sugar. And this is a protein sensitivity problem. Um, right. Not, not an allergy, though. I mean, I've seen um, milk allergy present with eczema. I don't, I've not seen milk soy protein present with eczema, but I have seen it with diarrhea, mucousy stools. You may not see the blood. You may see the blood. I've also seen babies with failure to thrive. So it goes back to one reason a baby might not be gaining weight. I, mm-hmm. I do like to think it's early because there's a very simple solution and it's relatively inexpensive solution for a breastfeeding mom, a little different for a bottle feeding mom. For a bottle feeding mom, you have to go on to a very expensive um, formula that you hope to get covered by insurance. But if you're breastfeeding, I'll let you take over. <laughs> yeah. So typically we'll start with dairy elimination. So there, there are common allergens that tend to be the offending So number one tends to be dairy, milk products. Number two is soy. Um, And then after that, egg is usually a third. It can be corn, can be shellfish, shellfish, citrus, wheat, chocolate, strawberries. It's kind of like the whole list. So typically, uh uh typically we'll do one at a time with a maternal elimination diet, starting with dairy and you can pull it out. Usually you see improvement in three to four days, but it can take two weeks and even Mm -hmm. up to a month. So typically some people will start with dairy and soy because they tend to, if you're allergic to dairy, um, there's a higher likelihood that you can be allergic to soy as well, but usually one at a time. Yeah. I don't interrupt you, but I don't want to confuse allergy with protein intolerance because those are, are, two different things. It is quite possible for a baby to have a food allergy. And then I could see how it could be any of those things you mentioned, but the protein intolerance that I know that's been studied, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist in other forms as the protein intolerance is called milk soy because the milk protein and the soy protein are homologous. They're, they're similar. Yeah. Typically like Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Protocol, we call it allergic proctocolitis. Interesting. It's like a hyper, yeah, sensitivity to the, to the protein. I think we're on the same wavelength. 
Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's semantics because I, I have yeah. seen babies who yeah. test, skin test positive. You know, if you have this milk soy protein, you won't necessarily skin test positive because it's yeah, not I get what you're saying. Same, it's so technicalities for not yeah. doctors here. Yeah, um, but that's because. <laughs> You know, you may not outgrow an allergy, but you're very likely to outgrow this milk soy protein. It's Correct. Kind of you will. It's you not will. a forever thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very rarely is it a forever thing. Most of them outgrow it by a year. The recommendation is from the day of diagnosis, you can try to reintroduce the offending agent six months since diagnosis mm-hmm. and between nine to 12 months. We usually make sure you're hitting both of those parameters and then you can reintroduce. Right. And the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, parents will say, well, I hardly have any dairy. And I'm like, this is microscopic. So if you're going to go free of this, you have to really read the labels because there's protein built into a lot of our processed food. You can't just not have milk or cheese or yogurt. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's challenging. And some parents are really like, okay, that's it. I'm done. They don't want to do that. Yeah. It definitely varies. I realize usually when you're seeking out a breastfeeding medicine physician, you're someone who really wants this to happen. So yeah, a lot of them, um, you know, with guidance, want to try to stick it out and see if they can eliminate the dairy and see, you know, things get better. Right. And, And there's no reason why they have to go on to a hydrolysate formula. I've heard physicians who say, well, if they have this, then they must have to go on this specialized formula. And that is not true. I've seen very dramatic curves where the baby was going down and mom went milk soy free and back up to, you know, a beautiful yep. range. Yeah, I agree. So it can make a huge, huge difference. Yep. So speaking about changes in, in um, curves, I want to talk for a few minutes about growth spurts and milk supply. So growth spurts exist. You know, this is one of those areas that uh, it's hard to know exactly when they're going to creep up on you. Um, and our goal is always to try to let the baby lead the way and, and try to roll with it. I, I like to use the words, it's a bit of surrendering and embracing the breastfeeding process because it is a challenging one. It can be unpredictable. You can go through all sorts of interesting stages throughout it. It is a journey. Um, and your goal when your baby is having a growth spurt, our goal is to respond to it, let them feed our milk supply will rise up in response to our babies as needed. Um, it, it is this ever-evolving mm. um, process, and it's not abnormal to have them. And usually with some reassurance, you can kind of manage to get through them. Mm. And what are some reasons for the baby refusing the breast? Um Sometimes with breast refusal, it's hard to know exactly why, but it's mm-hmm. normal to have different developmental stages where things get a little dicier from mm-hmm. teething. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely you will see, you know, when I, when they come in and they're saying they're a little fussy at the breast and you take that history, any intercurrent illness going on and ear infections mm-hmm. and going on that's throwing them off a little bit of a diarrheal illness. Um, what else? A very typical developmental time where I see some of this happening is at four months, they mm-hmm. get a lot more distracted mm-hmm. and their weight gain there tends to normalize and slow down a little bit. The first four months you're gaining like an ounce a day. And then around three to four months, you only need to gain half an ounce a day. And, and if you look at the World Health Organization growth charts based on breastfed babies, 
uh, they're leaner. So we want to look at those charts when we're, when we're looking at a breastfeeding baby's weight. And um, you see it's quite steep at the beginning. And then around three to four months, it flattens a little more because they, right, they it, don't it, have it, to grow. as insane right. right. It's interesting that you say that because I think in our charts, in our practice, right, you're in the same EMR that I'm in. Yeah. The CDC, I don't know how to switch to the World Health Organization. It's, it's, I sometimes will tell this to parents, you know that if I had the right growth chart, it would show different percentiles for a breastfed baby. Yeah, I don't, to be honest, I don't even bother using our charts in the EMR. I, 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 I pull up the World Health Organization uh, separately and plot them myself. Yeah, true. yeah, I can't see doing it any other way. So they, right, so they uh, are leaner. They are leaner. Yeah. yeah. That that brings me to to when to supplement a breastfed baby with food. I shouldn't say yeah, supplement so, because it's complementary at this point. Yeah, it is. It totally is. So global recommendations are around six months mm-hmm. to introduce solids. So I'll look to that. I just saw someone yesterday. I've been helping her since the beginning, and you always want to look at developmental readiness from a baby, right? That mm-hmm. you know, it had control, leaning forward, you're eating, and they want to grab it from right. you. And if, if that's happening at five, five and a half months, you're going, you can start. Um, so the the AAP breastfeeding statement gives you like a window, even of five to eight months. It's around six months. Some kids aren't ready at six months, and mm-hmm. you're trying to shove it in, and they're not ready. So there is a little leeway between, but it should be around six months. Right. The only hesitance I have with waiting to, you know, beyond six months is that there's also a window where they're more responsive to learning. And if you wait too long, they can become very resistant to trying new textures. Yeah. So I don't know where they get eight months from. I think that that's that's a little late. I I think it's more you want to introduce it earlier than that, Mm -hmm. but you don't want to make it a forceful negative experience if the baby isn't quite ready. I think they're trying to give you a little bit of acknowledgement that they may not be gung-ho and it's okay to keep trying. Right, right, right. And, and yeah. I'll just put my plug in. You may have to try your food 15 to 20 times before the will <laughs> accept it. Don't say they don't like peas because you gave it to them once and they made a face. Agreed. So I want to just, I, I want to have a few more minutes of your time. I want to go through four milk, high milk and balance because I, I end up having to talk about that a fair amount. Yeah, I see that a lot in my practice um, for a few reasons. So we tend to call it hyperlactation or oversupply. Mm-hmm. It, it's frequently where that comes from. Um, and lately you're seeing a lot of moms utilizing a pump um, more than they ne- ne- definitely need to. Mm-hmm. So if you have a mom who has the ability to make a lot of milk and she's latching and she's pumping a lot on top of latching, she can really over-program her breast production, breast milk production up and you're much more likely to have hyperlactation or oversupply, which tends to present with, I have so programmed my breast because emptier breasts make more milk mm-hmm. and you keep programming it up, that then you're more prone to getting feelings of uncomfortable fullness, engorgement, clogged ducts, mastitis, breast infections. And your baby, we joke, it's kind of like having a garden hose shoved down your throat mm-hmm. and turned on high. You choke, cough, sputter, hard time pacing, you're fussy, you're gassy, you're spittier. Where poops can be kind of frothy, foamy, mm-hmm. green, explosive, and you're kind of miserable. Um, and goal is to try to, to coach women to not overpump. Goal is to teach like the norm of, of normal physiologic breastfeeding should be the goal. Another thing I've really tried to, to bring up with a lot of my patients is 
don't make this harder than it has to. It is really hard to right. breastfeed on demand eight to 12 times a day and just and to do a little self-care and get in the right. shower and maybe go for, you know, takes a little time to be you. Um, you know, when you're adding pumping a ton on top of this, it's more work for you to do as well and it can lead to its own cascade of problems as well. Right. So you should really have an indication for pumping in the first month of life. Goal is on demand all at the breast. And we pump two indications if our baby is not gaining weight well, not we talked about those reasons mm-hmm. earlier, that would be an indication to try to pump to help bring in the milk supply. Or if you're someone who brings in an overabundant milk supply and you have engorgement and uncomfortable fullness and you offered the baby and you have more than the baby needs, then you can use your hands for a pump to soften. But you don't want to keep draining. I think all over the internet now when women have signs of clogging or breast infection, all over the place is if use your pump and empty, use your pump and empty. You don't want to do that because then you just keep calling your body to make more and more milk and it just makes things worse. So goal is to really calm a mom's oversupply and really teach her the joys and normalness of normal physiologic breastfeeding and not overdoing this because you cause a lot of problems. And I see a lot of that here. I see so many moms coming in teary because they're rock hard and uncomfortable mm. and getting mastitis after mastitis because they've so overpumped. Some people, your body just does this. It's probably the best problem to have when it comes <laughs> to this because we right. can calm you down. It is easier to calm you down versus sometimes, you know, raise you up. But you don't want to, you know, if you have a saying in this, you don't want to cause what we call secondary hyperlactation where you're doing all these things to make it happen. Primary is another story. And there's a lot I can do for you for that, too, to help you to be more comfortable and adjust things down. Um, but you see a lot of that happening from people bringing it upon themselves. Right. Do you tell moms to try to keep the baby on one breast in that case so they get to the high milk? Because when we said four milk, high milk imbalance, we didn't really say that the four milk, the natural way is to give the baby lighter, watery in the beginning and heavier, fatter at the end. So you feel full. So but if you don't get to that, then you're going to have the low fat. It's like being on a low fat diet. Yeah. Goal now is you want to empower women to not overthink and that you just breed more anxiety Mm -hmm. when you try to label all this stuff and, and make them scared of, you know, abnormal. Really, usually if you empower a mom to, once again, eight to 12 times at the beginning, establish a milk supply, offer both sides, let the baby be the one to decide when they're done. Mm-hmm. If, if you have a good amount of milk, they're likely not going to necessarily need the second side or only need a little bit of the second side. Let the normal physiologic feedback loop go on where I have you know a good amount. Okay, we don't need that second side as much. Let's let it calm down. I can mm-hmm. use my hands or pump a little as soften as need to. But you see a lot less of these issues going on when you're following your baby and your body's instincts, mm-hmm. not over pumping, not over expressing um, and calming things down. Sometimes I will utilize what we call block feeding where you have a mom stay on one breast for a feed. So mm-hmm. you can leave some milk on that other side to feed back to itself and, and calm itself down. Um, but usually it's not like we, time feeds or, or tell them that you have to, you know, have to do certain things. Goal is to follow normal physiologic, you know, function, and try to, to calm things down and help her have a normal experience. Right. The reason I'm saying this is say a baby who's a little bit older and who's at that distracted phase and they're on the breast for too short a period of time, then saying just stay on that one breast, don't switch. 
because you're switching from the low fat to the low fat. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes as life goes on in this journey of breastfeeding Mm -hmm. and you get to four months and they're distractible and they become moving targets and it's not so controlled and I'm on for this period of time typically. Um, Yeah, I think most most of my patients I feel kind of know that they know like, oh, he was on two seconds. He came off to say hi to my my puppy and then he's getting back. I know I need to let him finish this side before I move to the other. Yeah, definitely. I agree. You want I think most people I find are in tune with that and recognizing that we're short and we didn't really, you know, do the whole thing and let me finish that and then I'll offer the other side. Right. So that's a good segue to our last topic, which is weaning. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On that note. (laughs) In terms of being in tune. Yeah. I really think it's a, you know, it's a mutual decision. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes it's unilateral. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting Interesting time weaning, you know, you see a whole mix of everything. Um, A lot of women will choose to do what we call baby led weaning and and let the baby be the one to decide when they're done. And that can happen at different periods of time. Um, You know, in in our country, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation is breastfeeding exclusively six months, introduce complementary foods around six months and go for a year or more. So a lot of my population makes the goal of a year and then sometimes you have an early walker and they literally walk away from mom and it's before a year and she's beside herself because she had this goal of a year, which I always feel bad about. Um, you see that happen on occasion. Um, sometimes you see the mom who is working and balancing work life and other kids and is completely overwhelmed and wants to be the one to initiate the wean earlier. Sometimes you see moms who have the oversupply hyperlactation um, mega state are getting a lot of infections and we're doing everything we can to calm things, but sometimes they just had it. This sucks. I can't stand this and I want to stop and I'm mm-hmm. going to help them to do that if they're, it's by choice and that's what they want to do. And I've done everything I can to, to make them comfortable. And um, so, yeah, I agree with you. You see, sometimes it's baby led, sometimes it's mom led. Sometimes you like when they kind of both, correlate together, but it's never a perfect world, as we know from from step one of this talk. Um, So yeah, different things can can help when you're looking to help a mom be the one to initiate it. It kind of depends on is she latching? Is she pumping? Is she doing both? And Mm -hmm. strategy is to help her, um, you know, to go gradually, Mm because Depending on when you want to stop, you usually do go more gradually as with an older kid. They are eating, you're, you're on table foods and solids, and you're not latching as many times a day. If you're going to wean earlier, you're going to have to be a little more gradual and conscious about what you're doing to prevent plugging and mastitis and feelings of discomfort. Um, there are things that, that we can help them do on the outside if they know they want to end, like cold compresses mm-hmm. can be helpful. And there's all sorts of other stuff that... You can find some of it online, but, you know, there's all these herbs to help you make more milk. There's herbs that can help you decrease milk, like sage and peppermint are known for that. Um, Medications that we tell you to stay away from that can decrease milk supply. Sometimes we'll utilize them in women Mm -hmm. who have mega hyperlactation. We'll use it to calm their hyperlactation or to help them stop by choice. Um, So those can be like pseudofed, pseudoephedrine, decongestant. I would say it can dry you up here. I'm pointing in my nose. It can dry dry you up um, breast-wise as well. It can can help decrease milk. Um, 
And then you know, every once in a while, we'll go to a medication with a mom who has, once again, crazy, a lot of milk, and you're needing to make her more comfortable. Um, and that could be a week of an oral contraceptive to help. You always want to wait till a mom's beyond six weeks postpartum um, to start something like that. But um, you can think about that. And, and then there's something called cabergoline, which I only use for people who oh, wow. are severe. I, I see, you know, it's not a rare, rare thing. The more and longer I'm doing this for, but you can see people with really severe hyperlactation wow. that they're rock, you know, another thing we call it like gigantomastia, like crazy, uncomfortable rockiness, fullness that they're not sleeping. It's detracting mm. from their well just well-being in general. And sometimes they just need a teeny low dose to help them to get down to a normal state um, and slow things down. So there's stuff, if, if you're having a hard time moving, reach out. There's stuff, stuff we can do to help. Right. Do you have any websites that you like? Um, I do. You know, I'm so, as a physician, I'm so oriented in, into what I look at, at myself. Um I got it. I got to think about that. It's not coming off the top of my head. I like the website, like kellymom.com. Yeah, that's a good website. That's a good website. Yeah, I think that's a very good website for for moms. It has a lot lot of information. I do like that website. La Leche League has Mm -hmm. good information. Um, I like that website as well. And I'm going to keep thinking about it as we're talking that's okay you know what i i I really want to thank you the truth is that there's so much more we could talk about we we did not Uh talk about medications and what you can take and what you can't take and you know uh, mental health medications and whether you can nurse while on them there's i can add two things or am i short for time i can add two things on that you can do it you can do it (laughs) okay (laughs) most medications are compatible you mm-hmm. want you want someone knowledgeable to look something up before you stop breastfeeding or pump and dump because most things are compatible. And if not, we can usually find something that is compatible. And most radiologic procedures are compatible. There's mm-hmm. so many. I think we're always worried about right. as providers of saying the wrong thing and we err on the side of saying, no, you can't breastfeed right. or you should stop when it should be the other way. This is way too important and we want to do everything we can to help them continue. So you know, a mammogram, a, an MRI with GAD, a CT with contrast, none of those are things you have to stop. I'm thinking of all the things that mm-hmm. I find people are told that they need to stop for, which aren't accurate, um, and most medications. And there's there's evidence-based resources out there. There's LactMed. Right. Um, there's Infant Risk, which has a, a, a regular people, not just physician, um, mommy meds that you can look things up on to. Um, and when it comes to, you know, talk about COVID, a lot of anxiety flying during a, a time that's climactic, transitional, mm-hmm. and hard not to be, you know, anxious as um, the peripartum period is known for, you know, mood and anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. Throw a pandemic on top of it when you're having your first baby. Um, sertraline, Zoloft it is typically a preferred agent. Um, and there are undetectable serum levels and infants when the moms are taking it. So it's a very safe choice. Um, and once again, in combination with therapy and support and listening and holding and loving, um, it is okay to consider taking um, medication like a Zoloft. Or if you're on something already, mm-hmm. usually, usually it is preferential to continue a mother on a medication that is working for her than to change her. And usually it's compatible. So there is so much here in terms of supporting a breastfeeding family and really being thoughtful and, and in the approach and taking the time to help them to execute it versus it, 
a quick being and no, you can't. Um, just know that there's, there's breastfeeding medicine providers out there to help you make an educated choice. That is so amazing. You managed to squeeze that in. I was going to say well, to meet again. <laughs> ah, we still can. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think just a takeaway message for, for people listening is that, you know, your pediatrician and your lactation consultants are your friends. We can mm-hmm. help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to thank you so, so much for doing this with me. Of course. My pleasure. It was fun. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.